Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 22, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author, of course, of Spiritual Grit, the book that was released last year. It's a book about, well, how do you grow strength and perseverance from the inside out by attaching yourself more deeply to Jesus, and you get to share his strength. And man, do we need strength to live life. The Beckinators on the show today, we were just talking about before we got on here about just life in general and how much courage is required just to live life and just a, not even the extraordinary like oh somebody has cancer or just life in a broken world requires such great strength and perseverance and we only have a shallow bucket of it and so spiritual grit is about well how do we get a full bucket of jesus strength so that spiritual grit and a couple of years before that i published a book that really this podcast is is the rocket ship that was launched out of this book. It's called The Jesus-Centered Life. So if you are a lover of this podcast and you've never read The Jesus-Centered Life, it might be time. It'll help guide and direct your steps along this path. And of course, I'm the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which we talk a lot about a lot on this podcast. So there's a little uh, on-ramp. Today is the second episode in a new series that will extend deep into the summer. I'm calling the series Jesus Answers Life's essential questions. I think Julia, who's uh, the producer on this podcast, she shortened that to just essential questions. Not the first time in my life somebody has shortened something I've written, <laughs> and not the last. So Jesus answers life's essential questions. And if you're a lover of your G Jesus-centered Bible, if you own one and love it, you know that that little title, Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions, is one of the eight or nine special features we created for that Bible. What I did was I went through some research into, well, what are the essential human questions all people have? And I was able to condense those down to nine broad questions. And then the experiment was, well, how does Jesus answer these essential questions? What does he have to say about them? So I went through all four gospels looking for places where Jesus addressed those nine questions. And those little boxes I wrote are scattered throughout the four gospels of the Jesus-centered Bible. So um, you can, uh, if you like this series, you'll like those uh, little exploratory boxes in the Jesus-centered Bible. So last week in our first episode, we went after the big question of what is my purpose in life? And this week, we're going to focus on a question that seems a little bit esoteric, maybe theological when you first think about it, but it's actually way more practical than we assume. And that is the question, is God real? So I mentioned the remarkable Becky Nader is joining me today. Hi, Becky. Hello. Becky Nader, just give us a little, like a 15-second teaser of what you're doing these days so people are a little bit up to date with what, what's going on. Yeah, I recently, actually, I started doing a lot of like teaching and training. And so I, I actually hosted a really great call last week for the More Than Me mo movement where I talked about the uh, three things I learned about opportunity um, from a year of being homeless. <laughs> and so 
Um, and it, that, that was really great. I also have been doing some trainings with an organization called FemCity, which is a global female entrepreneur membership group. And I've been doing some master classes and I'm going to be part of their e-course series on how to start a business that's coming up um, and releasing in a month. And so just been doing a lot of uh, online trainings and getting to interact with new women outside of my world that I never would have met any other way. Um, and lots of podcast launching is happening. I've got three different people who are from various walks of life and various reasons that they're doing it, um, that are launching podcasts. One of them is just like two BFFs who don't spend enough time together and decided that they wanted to do something fun and they're going to start a podcast together. So it's not a business plan. It's just a fun hobby. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of what we do, Becky. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, really, I mean, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. We're, we do this podcast because we love doing it. We love the conversation that we have that Becky and I have together. Becky brings a perspective that is, you know, that I so deeply trust, but is very different than mine. That's what makes a good conversation. So Becky, if people wanted to get a hold of you or even explore their own podcast idea, how would they do that? So my new website domain is bhmarketingfirm.com. That's bhmarketingfirm.com because I just acquired a uh, business partner. Her name is Hillary Kay and she's the H to the B. So um, and then podcastrecipe.com. If you are interested in launching a podcast, I have three different options for how you can do that. Um, two of those is actually interacting with me. And one of them is a very passive way that you can just download an e-course and do it all on your own. So those are ways. And then obviously I am extremely involved with the more than me movement. I'm on the advisory board and I lead calls. I'm on zoom calls twice a month with members. So if you're interested in joining the more than me movement membership, you'll get a lot of interaction with me. There you go. What could be, what could possibly be the downside of more interaction with the Becky Nader? There isn't one. So today, uh, I, I mentioned the, the question, is God real? Sounds a little esoteric, maybe a little like your first thought is goes to a kind of a sciencey place. What's the proof that God exists? In any way you slice it, it doesn't seem at first blush like this is a question that impacts the practical details of my life right now. But we're going to explore how that's actually not true, <laughs> that this question, whether God is real or not, affects every little thing we do on a daily basis. So if you're an atheist, of course, you're also a materialist, meaning that the only things that are real are material things. So since you cannot experience God necessarily with all five senses, he must not be true, especially if you're a materialist atheist. So nothing outside of what we experience in our five senses can be really true if you're coming from that perspective. Or you might believe that there is a God that you can't experience with your five senses or a higher power, but that that God, based on your own experience and, and what you see in the world, must not care about actually involving himself in our story. He's there, he sets stuff in motion, and then he let it go. And that's why we're at where we are in the chaos that we're in. If that's where you're coming from, then you're an agnostic. You believe he exists, but he's not really involved in our life. So the question around this then in both cases is, well, what's our definition of real? So 
we live in an environment, in a cultural environment, where more people than you would think question whether God is really real. Now, they might have in the back of their mind, oh, of course, yeah, I believe in God or higher power. But when you get into the meat and potatoes of their life, they don't really act like he's real. They, they live their life as if he wasn't real. So if you examine their life, they, your, their life is telling you, yeah, 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 I believe in the idea of God, but not in the reality of God. So this question of whether God is real or not is a big question. It filters into so many little nooks and crannies of our life. So Becky, maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe a time when the issue of whether God was real or not came into practical play for you as you were making a decision or a choice. Can you think of a time when that was a reality for you where the division between whether you treated God as real or not was right on the surface for you? Well, I think a lot of times when we think about this question, we are relating it to whether or not we are going to choose to have salvation or whether or not we're a Christian or not a Christian. But I think, Rick, you kind of touched on it. Like, actually, I know a lot of Christians who have, you know, devoted their life to following Jesus who would say that they're doing it because it's a very good and moral way to live their life. They like the morality and the rules and the regulations. And so they're devoted to that. They think it's good for their family and for their kids and that living that way is a good way to live, but it doesn't really, when it really comes down to it, they don't think that Jesus is actually listening to them, that um, he, the spirit is alive in them, that that God's going to really change anything, that he's just, he's there and he laid out this moral code for us to, that if we live by it, it will be better for us. And so that is what following Jesus means to them. So even within the Christian structure, we have a lot of, well, is God real? Because if he is real and he really is alive in us the way that he said he would be when he left the Holy Spirit for us, then he is requiring some level of dependence. And and that sometimes it means that we have to put out some trust. And I, over the last year, I have had a really challenging relationship that I have come at from a variety of angles in my own repertoire. I've utilized professionals. I've worked with other people to try and work through this challenging relationship. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of tools in my toolbox I've been going to. I've been going to therapy since I was 21 years old. So um, I have a lot of tools in my toolbox. I'm very proactive. I am a minor in psychology. I read a lot of self-help material. Um, and so I've been really going at it with all of the tools in my toolbox. And it has come to the point where I have realized that none of the tools are going to work and that it's time for me to say, I have to trust Jesus with this. I have to walk away. I have to, I have to let him be the one who is in charge of this. And that is so hard because this relationship is super important to me. It's one um, that would be better for everyone in my life if it uh, worked out. And um, it is heartbreaking for me to get to this point because it's going to change a lot of things and some of them not for the better. But I have to, I have to get to a point where I say, 
that Jesus cares more about this situation than I do, actually. He really does. And he cares more about the people involved in this situation. And so it is super hard to get to a point where you have to be completely dependent and say, I understand now that the only way that this is going to change is if the Holy Spirit comes in and does work. That's believing God is real. <laughs> I was just going to say, too, that that when you say those words that I'm trusting Jesus, what you're really doing is you're taking something in your hands that's very valuable to you, that you have a lot on the line with, that you have a lot to lose with, and you're saying, I'm going to trust Jesus to involve himself in this situation past my own ability or what I've already tried to do. I need him to move. And in doing that act of trust, you really are saying he's real because I could keep going this way, but I'm going to go this way instead because I believe there is something real he can do. And we wouldn't do that if we didn't believe at some level that he's real. Some people might say, well, Becky, why have you been trying so long with all of your toolbox? But the truth is, we are reflective of Jesus in that, if you think about it, we spent a whole, almost two months talking about Jesus being fully God, fully human. Well, we are the home of the spirit of Jesus. Jesus tells us we have his spirit living in us. We're his home now. So we are definitely fully human, but we also have God himself living inside of us. So we're this mix of dependence on his spirit and also living out of our humanness. And there are things that he expects us to do in this relationship. We're not just always saying, Jesus, you do it. Jesus, you do it. He wants a relationship where we both bring stuff to the table. It's more, uh, all relationships are a work of art, really, in the end. It's two coming together to create together. And so you're at this place where you said, I'm going to trust Jesus for this now. And that is a indicator of your level of belief in his realness. I was thinking about this the other night in our small group. Believe it or not, we were the whole theme of this week's small group was on disgust. And it centered around an interview with a woman who wrote a book called That's Disgusting. It's an academic research-based exploration of how and why humans have the feeling of disgust that they do about different things. And we were exploring, well, what is Jesus disgusted by? And why is he disgusted by those things? Because you get a portal into his heart when you explore that. So the one story this woman who wrote the book, That's Disgusting, brought up was this famous story of these Chilean rugby players that whose plane crashed in the Andes with about 45 people on board and about 30 of them died. So there's 15 or 16 of them survivors in this mountainous region where nobody knew where the plane went down. So they were stuck there on the side of this mountain for two months. And the famous part of that story is that they ran out of food, the little bit of food that was on the plane, and they resorted to cannibalism to survive. So she tells the story of how disgusting cannibalism is to us, but she tells the story of how these men survived and you hear actual interviews with some of the men who were there, and you start to have less disgust for what they did. And so she's exploring, well, why is that? Why do we start out disgusted by that? So we're talking about this, and one of the kids said, we were kind of literally asking the question, would Jesus approve of cannibalism in that situation or not? And it was a real question that one of the kids brought up. So we were talking about this, and one of them, 
said I thought was a really profound thing. He said, well, there's no formula for this. In the moment, if you ask Jesus, what should I do? He might say one of two things. The spirit might say one of two things. One, no, I don't want you to eat the flesh of one of the dead bodies here. It's time for you to come home to me. You're going to starve to death. You could hear that, or you could hear the spirit tell you, yes, it's okay. Eat the flesh of one of the dead bodies here. So that's what this kid said. Another girl said, oh my gosh, how could I ever, ever have the guidance of the spirit like that? I mean, how would you ever know that Jesus was telling you one thing or another? That seems impossible to me. So then we had a conversation about what seems impossible. And really what she was saying is, how could God ever be so real to me that in a situation like that, I would feel like I was actually guided by him? That's a real question, I think. My response to her was, you know, like everything else we do as human beings, when you start riding a bike, it seems impossible. You see people all around you riding bikes. Do you think, how did they ever learn to do that? I can't imagine it because it, I can't figure out how to balance this thing. But the more you do it, the more you get used to the balance that it takes. The same thing is true in our relationship, in our dependent relationship with the Spirit. And as we get more used to depending on Jesus, he also, obviously, becomes more and more real to us. When you depend on someone, like your story just was, Becky, they become more real to you. So I think this question does infiltrate into lots of different arenas in our life. I think the overarching question of whether God is real or not, also we have to come to grips with that he could have made it easy for us, right? If the question is, are you real, he could have given such overwhelming evidence that he is real that it would take away any doubt. But he's purposefully not done that. He's left this gap. He has not given us concrete proofs. The other day, just yesterday, I got in the mail, I don't know why they sent this to me, but a bunch of stuff from a evangelical ministry that is all about sort of giving you the facts and scientific proofs and basis for why God is real and why what he's doing in the world is real. Uh, there's all kinds of little things in here. Like there's a little pamphlet they sent me that's called Scientific Facts in the Bible. It's just this tiny little thing about um, where does the first law of thermodynamics, where does that show up in scripture? And um, blood is the source of life is another one. And countless stars, just, just kind of a random collection of sort of scientific facts that are actually proven through the Bible. So we often kind of take this tack and we say, well, in answer to the question whether God is real or not, we need a mother load of facts to back up why that's true. But that's actually working against what God has done. He's chosen to not fill in every gap with scientific proof on purpose. So the big question there, Becky, is, well, why would he do that? Why would he leave a gap? Why would he leave any uncertainty about whether he's real or not? Well, first of all, I, I think, um, I think it's great. Like there's a lot of like the case for Christ is a book that I, that comes to my mind that has had a great impact. I think that it's mostly had a great impact on Christians, um, who were feeling like maybe there wasn't a ton of, it, it strengthened their faith. I don't know. I mean, I don't know it, but I've never really been that concerned about 
helping people who don't believe in God, believe in God. Um, for one, I'm pretty sure that if that was important to God, that he would have done it. He would have made it crystal clear without a shadow of a doubt for decades and decades and generations to come that we would never doubt his existence. But there's an element of love that is an element of love that is required is free will and free will requires faith. And so God couldn't be completely loving if he had made it in a, in any kind of way that eliminated our free will. And so by making it so that there's no shadow of a doubt that he exists, there's no element of free will and therefore no element of faith. And in all the years that I have been following Jesus and all the time that I have been in ministry, and especially when you're in college ministry, you see a lot of people come to know the Lord during that time, high school, college. Those are kind of the ages where a lot of people, um, they sign on for faith. And I don't know anyone in all that time whose testimony was, and I finally got to a place where I believed in the existence of God. Their story was always about encountering Jesus, where he came in and he did something. He revealed himself, his heart, and in such a way that, that was non-scientific, that, was, that had nothing to do with our five senses or a scientific understanding of the belief of God. The, their stories were always about an encounter where Jesus just found them. And they knew from that moment on that he existed. And so two things that I would say about that is that Jesus is the one who encounters people. And he is the one who brings that, um, that belief and that faith to them and that relationship. And two, there's usually always a relationship attached to it. There's a, a relationship part of the story. Um, somebody who they trusted and had a relationship with facilitated um, that encounter with Jesus. And so I, I honestly, like I, I have um, my, what, what are we calling him? My, my sweetheart. There's a, a poll going on the pig's page. So I think yeah, sweet, sweetheart I, works better than the other options. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sweet, sweetheart, I think was the best of the options. If you are curious about what we're talking about, you can join the pig's page and go see the uh, poll on what we should call my boyfriend. Um, but my sweetheart, he is, he's always asking these like kind of existential questions about God. And it's good because I really don't think about any of this stuff. It just doesn't really matter to me. And I, I'll say to him, like, I just, I understand where you're coming from. They're not like doubting questions. They're just like, I wonder. And, and that's just the way his brain is wired. And I'm like, I just, I really don't care. I really don't care about any of these existential questions because I have encountered Jesus so many times that there's nothing in me that could ever be convinced that he is not real. It's, it's set, it's set in motion in such a way that I don't care about the five senses questions or the existence related questions. They don't really matter to me. Your life experience has transcended those questions. Yeah. It's not like they're not important and interesting, but your own experience has transcended them. And it's interesting that you bring up your relationship because you're still relatively early on in your relationship and every relationship has elements of doubt to it. 
And it doesn't change after you get married. It doesn't change after you've been married for 50 years. There's still doubt embedded in every relationship. Can you guarantee what your spouse will do even tomorrow? Well, Becky, you have painful recent evidence that no, you can't. No. Um, so, so there are many, and that doubt was epic, but we have little doubts every day about each other. Even your best friend who you know would die for you, well, you still have doubts. It would only take one bad move from one person or the other to make you think, I wonder what's going on there. It doesn't take much. Our, our relationships of trust are fragile. They require perseverant, continuous re-embracing of that trust. So doubt comes into every relationship. Doubt comes into our relationship with God as well, because it's in those doubts that we access something besides our brain, besides our intellect. I don't think God wants this question, is he real or not, to be a intellect conquering question only. We have a heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants to engage all of those things in a relationship. And so the question really can't be confined to simply uh, intellectual pursuit. That's not how he's designed this. I was thinking about how people in general out there in the world shy away from this question of whether God is real or not, almost reflexively, even though they can't help but sometimes stray into this territory. So that same podcast I was listening to that we used as part of our small group, the interview that with the woman who wrote That's Disgusting was on a podcast called Hidden Brain. It's hosted by Shankar Vedantam. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And he was trying to engage in this whole kind of mystery of what disgusts us. And he said, you know, there's a study out about people who are getting married and can't afford to buy a brand new wedding ring. So they buy a used wedding ring, but people do not want to buy a used wedding ring from someone who had a very contentious divorce that led to them selling their wedding ring. He was pondering, well, why is that? Because the ring itself has nothing to do with the conflicts that were involved in that divorce. And yet you don't want a ring from somebody who was involved in that because it has a kind of a transference quality to it. So in the middle of his pondering, Shankar Vedantam says, you know, that sounds like kind of a spiritual thing. So he was almost embarrassed to say that. He said, so there must be a scientific reason for that. And the, the woman he was interviewing, Rachel Hers, the author, said, well, there is a kind of a spiritual quality to our disgust of things. This transference of the spirit of something onto something else is a real thing for us. But it was really hard for the host of this podcast to bring himself to that point, although there was no other explanation for him. So we have this tension all the time that we wished this thing could be all intellectual, but it's not. And we know it's not. So I thought it would be good, Becky, for us to listen to one of my favorite little snippets of an interview that I've ever run across. I use this little snippet of an interview in some ministry training that I do. It's an interview with Bono, the lead singer and songwriter of U2, with the Irish late night TV host, Gay Byrne. He, uh, Gay Byrne is kind of a, an icon in the UK. Uh, he's, he's like what David Letterman would be in our environment. So he's, he's gone way back as a late night TV host. And uh, he interviewed Bono and was very aggressive in asking him questions about whether Bono really believes 
that God is real. Because that seems crazy that this guy who's head of one of these supergroups of all time would actually believe in a God who's real, or whether that's just one of those celebrity affectations, you know, that where you thank the higher power when you win your Oscar or whatever. This interview is really a skeptic interviewing Bono. And I thought it would be good for us to listen to how Bono responds to these questions because the interviewer wants him to give proof that God is real. So let's listen to the proof that Bono gives. Here we go. I look to the scriptures for poetic truth, um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm, I'm, I'm in, interested in. And of course, there was a histor historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, you, I see, I'm, the, per the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To and Christ. Way? To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? I pray to get to know um, the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming through. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. There's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We have a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended and we'll just go in on our own as a family. For peace and quiet. For peace and quiet. And we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something, um, illness so, or so whatever. So then what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, I've no problem with miracles. I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. And there we have Bono. And I just love that little bit of interview because when you're being interviewed by a well-known interviewer, and he's grilling you down to the detail of how can you believe in such a thing, you're tempted to go to the proof path, I guess is a way of saying it, to go to a, a place where you're trying to prove this on some intellectual level. And that's not the tack that Bono takes. 
I have such respect for how he responds to this in the moment. So the, the questions then, Bono's argument is that Jesus is either who he says he is or he's nuts. And the question is, is that enough proof? Is that alone Bono's little formula there? It's not really a formula. It's a way of contrasting two things. But he's basically saying we're only left two options here. Either Jesus is who he says he is or he's a nutcase. And I can't bring myself to believe that he's a nutcase, so the other must be true. It's like uh, Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes character, his guiding sort of truth for Sherlock Holmes solving mysteries was always, if you've, if you've eliminated all the other options, then the only one that remains must be the truth. That's what Bono's doing here. So Becky, is that enough proof to say that God is real? Is what Bono's saying enough proof? Actually, what he said was that he refused to believe that all the millions of people for the last 2,000 years who have been touched and inspired by Jesus are really just following a madman. I think that he said exactly what I said is that, you know, everybody who's coming at this from a scientific perspective who want God to be real under our own limited brain understanding, which is he has to be able to pass the test of the five senses and that no other senses exist because we as humans have determined the five senses and so no others can exist. We're smarter. But what he said is then why is it that there are thousands and millions and millions of people over thousands of years who have been touched and changed by the power of Jesus? And that's what makes him real is that right there. And also, you know, I think Bono was actually talking about a book that I've read. It's called The Jesus-Centered Life. He may not have known it, obviously. <laughs> you know, he, he oh, read it at only, some point. And if only Bono knew that book. <laughs> could, he couldn't place the author at the time, but he would have said it. But he was talking about the, there's only two questions that are covered in The Jesus-Centered Life. And the first one is, who do I say that Jesus is? And that's what he's saying is he said, I believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he was crucified and that he rose again. And because of that, because of what I, I believe about him, that makes my life different. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of the thing that is in the Jesus-centered life. I quote Brennan Manning, the great sort of poetic ex-priest author of many books, but uh, he said something once that I thought was so profound. He said, I'm just paraphrasing here, but he just, he said, we can't learn anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God, but we, we can't learn anything about God without knowing Jesus. I mean, in every way, Jesus has said, I am the way for you to understand the God you can't see. So what Bono here is saying also is, as I have come to know Jesus, the reality of God has become more clear to me because I can't deny Jesus and who, who I experience him to be. And this idea that we can experience transformational change in our life, um, or that you might call it the miracle of redemption in our life, is that real enough to say that God is real? Or is that then weak and fragile because it's based on our own experience? We want some, something outside of our own experience to prove God's reality. And I think this gets to what you're saying there a little bit, Becky, is like, why have we made that the proof? 
that there's something outside of our reality that is the only trusted way to know whether he's real? What if uh, it's inside our reality? What if our own experience of transformation is the deepest proof we need for his reality? Because how could someone like me be transformed, changed even from the DNA of my family history into the person that I am now outside of a powerful inside out transformational uh, person in my life? Um, is that enough proof? And I, I think you're saying, Becky, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And I, because I think when you experience the transformation of Jesus and you start to see your life change, things that you have been working. In fact, I was at um, a coffee shop yesterday doing some work between meetings and I overheard a conversation. Um, a young man was there and he was dealing with a whole bunch of different things, uh, addictions, um, he was just a host of things, anxiety, depression. Um, and he was, he was talking to somebody about like, I've reached my limit. I have reached my limit in my life with this stuff. And so here's what I'm doing. And he was explaining this regimented program he was about to put himself through to get away from these addictions. So he was going to go out into the woods and walk alone for a day with like bears and then like, all, I mean, this. I, I thought, well, that sounds like a fabulous plan. I really hope it works out for you. But I wanted to walk up it, to him and say, the Holy Spirit is the only thing that's going to tackle this. I didn't because yeah. that would be weird. And <laughs> I probably shouldn't have been eavesdropping. But um, the, the point is that when you've been battling a problem and battling a problem and battling a problem, and then you give your life to Jesus and he comes in and it just goes away because he changed it. You know, without a shadow of a doubt that you had zero power against it. And so that's all you need. I mean, it's all you need. And then the, and you also know that there's a power outside of you that is real enough to do that work. Um, let's jump into a couple of little encounters Jesus has here where he explores the reality of God. But from a kind of a sideways perspective, I think that's what will make this interesting. So, um, Becky, I think we'll dive into these two things and, and talk about each encounter right after them. And so what we're looking for here is what does Jesus have to say um, about whether or not God is real in this encounter? So the first one is in Matthew chapter 6. It's in verses 1 through 6. Um, here's how it starts out. Uh, this is a long stretch of where he is uh, early on sort of laying the groundwork for the contrast of the truth of the kingdom of God to what people have commonly accepted in the culture. So he's trying to upend their common beliefs and replace them with something that is true in the kingdom of God. That's the context of when he's saying this. So he tells the people, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, 
shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. And I think embedded in the middle of this teaching, this encounter, Jesus is saying essentially, well, God is real and he can see all the secret things you do. And he's eager to reward you for those things. But if you act like he's not real and you steal the reward for yourself by doing it publicly or, or controlling the reward somehow yourself, you're essentially saying, well, God's not really real. I'm doing this incredible thing. And you're asking me to expect a God I can't see to reward me. And Jesus is saying, that's right, because he's real. And if you won't do that, you're saying he's not real. Uh, I think that's what the fascinating little twist he has in here. So the question is, um, how is control in our life related to our disbelief in God's realness? I think that's some of what Jesus is raising here. How does that hit you, Becky? Uh, you know, as we're, I was preparing to record this episode, and you know, I was going to share some examples from my own life, but both Rick and I have worked with parents of teenagers for a long, long time, and there's no greater struggle that a parent goes through um, than watching their teenager walk away from God and start uh, participating in really bad stuff, you know, whether that's drugs or alcohol or, um, promiscuity and, uh, you know, some in this day and age, you know, suicidal tendencies and depression. I mean, just all of this stuff, watching your teenager go off the rails is horrifyingly hard and you will put every ounce of effort absolutely into trying to keep that over. But I also think that as parents, we have to trust God there that we can get lost in that notion and that there, there has to come a point, I think, where you just say, God, this child of mine is truly yours and I'm throwing everything at it, but they're not wanting to quit. And I just need to let them go. And, and especially as they if they've continued this and now they're an adult and they can leave your house and they can go live their life. It is real hard. There are mamas probably who listen to this podcast right now and all over this country who are deeply in prayer and hurt over that. And I think that we just have to say, God, I trust you. I trust you that you love my child more than actually I do and that you know what's best for them. And that is a form, as strange as this sounds, it's a form of doing things in secret, meaning you're not doing the visible thing, either you or those around you think you need to do. You're doing the secret hidden thing that says, I trust you, Jesus. And when you make that kind of decision, you are not only proclaiming to the world, I believe that Jesus is real. It's also a profound form of worship. When we offer Jesus in secret, so to speak, the gift of our trust, we are proclaiming to the world that he's real. So it's kind of like if you're a parent again, and you um, discover by accident that one of your children has done something extraordinary that they've never mentioned before. They didn't bring it up. You just maybe find out through one of their friends, a great act of generosity or sacrifice. And you go, oh my gosh, I didn't even know you had done that. What it does in you is say, outside of their sight of me, they have upheld the values and 
truths of the kingdom of God in their life when they knew that I wasn't watching and they weren't even trying to let me know that they had done it. There's something profound in that for us because we know at the core of our heart, oh, this came from the deepest place in their heart, not from any leverage from me. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. When you do these things in secret, you're proclaiming my realness. Another way of saying what Jesus is saying here, here's my paraphrase of what he's saying. Hey, God is real, you guys. So you don't have to scrape and hoard and guarantee reward for doing good things because he can see what you're doing. He sees it in secret. So do those things in secret and you're worshiping him. When you treat your reward as only coming from God, it's a profound form of worship. When you do that, you proclaim the truth that God is real. It's, it's, uh, it reminds me a little of um, when in John 6 when all the crowds leave Jesus because he's freaking them out over this eat my body and drink my blood stuff. And he, again, asks his disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else would I go? Well, Peter is not there saying, I have all the evidence I need to stick with you here, Jesus. <laughs> he has no evidence to stick with him. Yeah, the evidence uh, uh, that the, the reality of Jesus and that he is the son of God for Peter comes in that he is, his heart has been conquered by him. His heart has been permanently changed by him. So Peter says, where else would I go? That's all the proof I need. You changed my heart. There's another little encounter here that uh, I want us to touch on before we close off here. It's in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So if you're not driving and you want to flip over to Luke chapter 7 and follow along here, of course, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which is the translation we used for the Jesus-centered Bible. So here is Luke chapter 7, um, verses 1 through 10. Here's where Jesus has this famous interaction with a Roman soldier. Jesus had just finished saying all of this to the people, and he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. Well, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. So here at the heart of this officer's startling response to Jesus is a very simple truth. This pagan Roman officer believes that God is real. He believes he is so real that he doesn't even require that Jesus come to his home. What an extraordinary thing. I can't imagine myself doing that. Uh, if, if I was desperate for someone I love to be healed, I would want Jesus to come and touch that person. I would want his physical presence there. Even if I believed that he had the ability to heal, I would want him to come and touch the person that I loved. This man says, I get who you are. 
and I get the reality of who you are, you don't even need to come to my house. Just give the order. I know it's going to happen. I, uh, wouldn't it be incredible to say or do something that amazed Jesus? Well, this guy did it. So the question is, why is this Roman officer so confident that God is real and that Jesus is God? What is the evidence that he's acting on? So I know we're just speculating here, Becky, but what do you think of when you think of that question? What is, why is this guy so confident that Jesus is who he says he is? I, this kind of reminds me of our friend Steph's faith. She's always like, well, obviously he's the creator of the universe. And so how he created it and what he did, like, is none of our business, obviously. (laughs) She just has this like, she has this high understanding of his authority and that, you know, like if you're like, if you're the creator, like, just like, I mean, we worked at group publishing and we have a CEO there and guess what? Our CEO, he didn't tell us everything and he didn't tell us why he would make certain decisions. It was none of our business. And I think this officer understands he was used to chain of command and that when you're in the highest level of of authority, you understand that certain information is not uh, pertinent to certain people's understanding because if they heard it, they wouldn't be able to do the things that they needed to do. It was too much for their position. And, And so he's like, dude, I get authority. I don't need you to explain (laughs) how you're doing it. It's obvious that you report to a much higher power here. So let's just get this thing done here. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's at some deep level. He has become convinced. So this is a smart guy, an observant guy, observant enough to have observed the Jews that are the people that he is, his army is occupying their country. And he lives amongst them. And this extraordinary statement from um, his friends who say, this Roman officer has come to love the Jewish people. Um, This is why you should go help him, Jesus. So we know this about this man, that he's paid attention to the Jewish people. There's something very attractive to him about their love for God and the way that they live their lives. He has been raised in a pagan environment, and he's exposed to people who actually believe in God. And he's very attracted to them as a people, so much so that he builds them a synagogue so that they can meet together in their, in their town. So this man already pays attention. He's, uh, he's paying attention to the heart, we know. And he starts, to, he must have heard about Jesus and the things that Jesus was doing. And as he heard the stories of what Jesus was doing, where that went to in his head was, hey, this guy, if these things are happening, this guy has authority. I get authority. And the more he heard, the more he was convinced based on what Jesus said and did that he was who he said he was. And at certain point, a military officer, as you mentioned, Becky, who lives under authority says, if this person has the quote unquote rank that they do, then it's easy. I just need to do what that per- ranking officer tells me. And clearly, Jesus is the ranking officer over the whole world. So he can say or do whatever he wants, and those things have to obey him. So I get who you are, Jesus, in the end. So what he's really saying is the the God I can't see and the Jesus I've never met will 
simply say the word and my beloved servant will be healed. It's that kind of convincing that you can see it involves all four things, heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of those things are integrated into that man's assessment of Jesus. It's not just his head that's been convinced. It's his heart that's been convinced. And it's not just his heart that's been convinced. In his strength, he could have said, Jesus, you need to come to my house. Instead, he, sh he, he trusts the strength of Jesus and uses his own strength of courage to say, you don't have to come. Uh, so all of these things mix in together to this man's convinced belief that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, I, it's such an incredible story. I, uh, uh, somebody on the pigs page the other day, by the way, if you want to be invited onto that page into our little community, uh, we'll put a link on this podcast page so that you can request to be invited in and you can be part of the conversation. But somebody on the page um, was talk, uh, had posted a, a question the other day about you know, what will, uh, what, what are you most looking forward to in heaven? And so people were writing all kinds of things that they're looking forward to. And I think I, I posted, I can't wait to hear Jesus laugh. I really can't. But I also, if we can go back in time in heaven to see some of these things visually, oh, this is the most, this is one of those that I would love to see. I would love to see Jesus's face when he hears what this man says. I would just love to be in that moment because I, I think it's uh, one of those extraordinary moments when somebody really, really does get Jesus. So, so Becky, what we find the reality of God, this is something that, that was uh, profound to me when we first talked about this the other day. Uh, we find the reality of God in relationship, not through scientific pursuit, but it's always in the context of relationship. So uh, a note that I wrote to myself here is that I think we find the reality of God in relationship because he does not want a compartmentalized relationship with us. The enlightenment taught us to trust only those things we can apprehend with our intellect. Up until that point, human beings were integrated people. All four of those things were integrated into us, but the enlightenment uh, was an overcorrection to some abuses that were happening within the culture. And the overcorrection was trust only those things your intellect can understand and prove. You said earlier, Becky, that these questions that Nick has brought up on occasion about these esoteric questions about whether God is real, and you've said you're uninterested in them and they seem boring to you. <laughs> Tell me again, to just kind of restate, why are those questions in this context uninteresting or boring to you? Because they don't change anything about my belief in God. They don't have any weight or bearing there. And a lot of times, no matter if you are the most educated scientist or chemist or whatever, like I don't care if you have a PhD in biology, you still can't give an answer to these questions. <laughs> and there's been books and books written. And I feel like on neither side has anybody really given an adequate answer. And so what I put my attention and my life on and my thoughts and my focus is on what God has called me to do. <laughs> and that's already enough, right? Like think about what he's called you to do. Think about the relationships he's called you into. Think about the hard things he's calling you to overcome. Think about all of that 
and how much effort and attention that takes to do well. And these kinds of things to me are just distracting. (laughs) And they just, if, if it really mattered to Jesus, he would have made it clear that it mattered. And he would have said, this is important. And if you don't figure out the biology of the creation of earth, well, I don't know what to say for you, Becky. (laughs) So I love that. And let's leave it with this. Here's a question for all of you to chew on uh, through the day relative to whether God is real or not. What if the proof of God's realness can only be found when you act on your relationship with him? What if that is the path that Jesus has set forth to quote unquote prove the reality of God? He has said, I am retaining proof only in the context of relationship. When you act as though I am real, then you will find that I am. And if you refuse to act as though I'm real in my, in your relationship with me, then I will withhold the proofs that you're demanding that all of my realness is caught up actually in the, the risks that you take and the actions that you take within the context of our relationship. So there's the thought I want to leave with all of you today is to think that through And what might Jesus be inviting you to act on in your relationship with him? And when you do, how do you discover his realness in that process? That's the challenge before us. And by the way, gang, I forgot to mention this earlier, but oh my gosh, I have a book coming out in about 10 days. It's called The God Who Fights For You. Now, this book is interesting because about 12, 10 or 12 years ago, I wrote a book called Sifted that will always hold a special place in my heart. It's maybe the most poetic work of art I've ever created. It was called Sifted at the time, and uh, it played its course over the last decade or so, and I got the rights back to it because I wanted to work on it a little bit. Uh, I edited it down, I updated it, and I changed it into a new experience. And another publisher wanted to publish it, and they have retitled it The God Who Fights For You. It's coming out June 25th, I believe, and we'll put a link to it on our podcast page, especially if you've never read Sifted. This version is a bit shorter, and I've cut out some of the things that now, 10 years later, I would have cut out at the time if I'd been the person I am today. I've cut some of those things out, and I've updated other things in it. So even if you have read Sifted before, I think you'll enjoy this new version of it. So it comes out in about 10 days, and uh, uh, we'll put a link to it on our podcast. And please do check it out. If you want to you know, even maybe get it ahead of time, that always helps a book uh, to get launched when people show an interest in it, uh, before it before it actually is available. So if you want to help me out, um, head on over to – to our page at uh, lifetree.com, or you can go to Amazon and look up The God Who Fights For You, and you'll find it there. You can pre-order it if you want. So, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, this is Season 4, Episode 22 of the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast. You can find out all the links that we've talked about today, all the stuff we've talked about today, are there on our website at paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You can go there as well. This is a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And Beck Nader and I, will again, will be together in a couple of weeks. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.